A small content warning for this week's episode whilst discussing pacifism in the Wheel of Time. In the timings of 56 minutes to 59 minutes, I do reference a quote from Robert Jordan's blog, Crossing His Final Days, in which he details traumatic thoughts and descriptions of himself during his time in the Vietnam War. If this is something you may find upsetting, I recommend that you do not listen to that part of the podcast. Welcome to Malkia Talks, a Wheel of Time theory podcast. I am Rob, your host, and today I am joined by Shelley. Hi. How you doing, Shelley? I am doing okay, thank you. In the middle of a pandemic, as good as can be expected. That is very, very true, absolutely. But it's good to have you here, Shelley. Um, for those who don't know you, because you are just a, a mad raving fan that I've just invited on for a very specific reason, um, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, as much as you're comfortable sharing, obviously. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Shelly. For those of you who hang around discords, you may know me as Shellerific, the wise one. I am a Canadian. I live in Toronto. And I've been uh, reading Wheel of Time for probably 15 years. And I, I figure I can tell you how I started reading Wheel of Time because I think it's a pretty good story. I was, in I was in Australia. And my friend and I were doing a one-month tour around Australia. And I was kind of buying books and returning books to use bookstores as I went. And the person I was traveling with at the time said, you know, you should try this series. And I looked at the cover and went, sure. Um, if you remember the Daryl K. Sweet covers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, thank you. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to buy it for you. You're going to love this series. Two days later, I came down with the worst sunstroke of my life. Oh. So literally, I was stuck in this um, hostel that happened to have a hammock and a cooler full of Gatorade. And I sat in this hammock for three days drinking Gatorade. And the owner of the hostel happened to be a big fantasy fan. So he had the books. So all I could do was read and drink Gatorade for three days and reread these fantasy books. So I think I plowed through like the first four in like two days because I was just so sick and couldn't really sleep. And then after that, I got back to Canada. I finished the rest of them. And that was before the series was finished. So I got into the Wheel of Time and the Wheel of Time got me through a very unpleasant two days on my vacation. Yeah, that does not sound... I mean, I've been to Australia. I, I used to live in New Zealand, um, hence, mm -hmm. hence my funky accent. And Australia, it gets hot. Like, sunstroke is not not something to, to shake a stick at. It's um, it's a pretty serious deal. So um, No, and I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm not used to that kind of heat, right? Like, our summers get hot, but not like... Not Australia hot. Five degrees on a boat, you know. And of course, me, I'm like drinking beer. I'm an undergrad get back to the tent. And then just next thing I know, I'm like, this is the most unpleasant I've ever felt in my life. Yeah, I can, I can believe that I've experienced mild sunstroke. So uh, I have a slight understanding of how you're feeling there, but it, it does suck. But I'm glad that you got into Wheel of Time despite the covers. Right. It just, it helped me get through. Yeah, ex absolutely. That's, um, you know, a lot of people will see the covers and think, mm, no, thanks. Don't think so. But, uh, you know, good on your friend. Are you still friends with a friend? Uh, not anymore. We've lost touch, but oh. um, it was it was just kind of funny. Just I was like, I am not reading this crap, and he was just <laughs> like, No, no, no. Trust me. And now I'm I'm pretty sure I'm on about my tenth reread of the series at least. 
Excellent. Probably more than that. Cause like, you know, there's periods where I just listen to the audiobooks while I was training for a half marathon or something. And so I don't even know how many of them I got through then. Yeah. Michael and Kate's voice is just, um, they just, you just disappear into the background. Um, you just keep listening. It's, I can appreciate that. Awesome. Oh yeah. Well, uh, after that fun discussion of, mm-hmm. um, of how you got into the story, we're going to get a little serious today. Um, yes. and we're looking at pacifism and how Robert Jordan uses it in a wheel of time and, mm-hmm. and the rabbit holes that we can go on from there. And, and that's why I, well, I invited you onto the podcast because I love having new people on, especially people who are excited to talk about the series. But then mm-hmm. we got discussing because I don't want people on for something they don't know about or they don't feel comfortable talking about. So we spent a bit of time figuring out what we could discuss mm-hmm. or theorize about or, or anything of that lines. And we settled on pacifism because it's something you're you're fairly knowledgeable in and got a qualification in, am I right there? Uh, so I had, do have a PhD in religious studies. Um, I didn't really study pacifism. So I, I, I do practice the Christian faith and I do practice pacifism. And I don't want this to be, become a religious discussion because I know some people that get their backs up. But it is something that even in my non-religious social justice circles comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes they'll use nonviolence instead of pacifism. And I was always just fascinated in the wheel of time because uh, I went to a lot of my theological training was at a Mennonite school. And Mennonites are some of the most famous pacifists in the world. And currently, I split my time between a Quaker church and a United church. And the Quakers are also known pacifists as well. So it's one of those things when I saw it in the Wheel of Time, I was like, huh, I wish I had more people I could talk to about this. Very true. It's um, I'm not heavily, uh, well, I'm not religious at all. So obviously, I'm not involved in, in churches or anything like that. But when someone says to me pacifism and then Wheel of Time, my automatic thought is the tinkers. Exactly. Um, you know, that is, that is, I imagine most people, their first thought would be that the Tinkers is pretty much all of it in the Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we thought we'd start today, isn't it? We'd uh, have a look into the Tinkers and, and sort of take it from there. Yeah. And I, th- I think you're more knowledgeable about the background of the Wheel of Time than I am. I, I mean, I, I make a little bit of content around Wheel of Time. So I, I hope I'm fairly knowledgeable <laughs> on the Wheel of Time. <laughs> but I'm sure we can um, uh, have a, a fun discussion out of this anyway. So. Mm-hmm. We settled on influence for the Tinkers. Uh, we, we sort of decided that they were, well, actually, shall we, let, let's go with who they are in the story. And we'll, we'll talk about what their role is. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. go with that first. And then we'll talk about where they come from. Mm-hmm. We'll get a bit, do it a bit more organized, Rob. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good because I'm, pl- I'm planning to send this to some of my friends who are more on the pacifism side and less on the Wheel of Time side. So let's give them some context. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So for those of you who uh, Shelley has said, you must listen to this. And for those of you that for some reason aren't familiar with Tinkers in the Wheel of Time, uh, perhaps you're new to the story. Uh, the Tinkers are a, a group of people. They travel in um, wagons, um, big rounded wagons insane color collections on these wagons mm-hmm. um, and on their clothing. And they practice what is known as the way of the leaf. Um, for those of you thinking immediately of puppets, that is not what we're talking about here. <laughs> <laughs> for those not in the know, that's a, that's another show in the Wheel of Time fandom. But um, yeah, they, they follow the way of the leaf, which is um, basically they are sworn to do no violence whatsoever, mm-hmm. even in a defense of their own lives or defense of others, which is... Quite an interesting position to take in Mm -hmm. the Wheel of Time. I don't know. What was your first impression? Well, I mean, there's the quote that I think it's Rain says about describing the way of the leaf. 
And he says, uh, the leaf lives in its appointed time, and it does not struggle against the wind that carries it away. The leaf does no harm and finally falls to nourish new leaves. And I just remember reading that and thinking, RJ, you goofball, he's just so good at merging so many different things. Because um, when we look at the tinkers, you know, we're thinking about the Roma, who are not traditionally pacifists, but what he's describing there is a very kind of Buddhist, um, Jainism, Hindu kind of ahimsa is the, the I think Sanskrit is the word for nonviolence in those religions, but kind of also a bit of a Mennonite view as well. So like so many other parts of his books, he's just mushed together a bunch of cultures to come up with this way of the leaf that the tinkers practice. Yeah, that is a classic RJ that he uses multiple sources from multiple cultures or histories, mythologies, and, and religions, obviously, to, to create the characters in his books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is uh, Rain who says, or Rain, um, however you want to pronounce that name, I'm not going to get too picky on name pronunciation. Um, <laughs> I know some people do. Uh, if, if those people are listening to this podcast, they are going to want to plug their ears because I'm terrible at pronouncing all these things. Every time I meet another Wheel of Time fan and they're like, oh, the Ajaz. And I'm like, the what the fucks? <laughs> oh, the Ajaz. <laughs> For anyone listening to this podcast who wants to know a bit more about pronunciations, please go listen to a previous podcast I did with Kate Redding and Michael Kramer, um, where we talk about why it doesn't really matter. Um, it basically, really it's, it's, it's whatever you read it as is fine. Mm -hmm. Just go with that. So, <laughs> unless it's a really bizarre way of saying it that people don't even mildly recognize, like if you went eight, eight ages mm -hmm. and you're like eight ages, no, eight ages, age, eight, you know, age, you know, that using that example is weird. But anyway, went on the tangent <laughs> there. Sorry. In an ideal world, this is a wonderful way to live. Mm -hmm. You know, not doing any harm to anybody, no matter the situation. But, and we just discussed this in, in sort of uh, pre-show stuff, it's a bit bizarre when you've got a world with Trollocs, doesn't it? Yes. So there are pacifists, like real-life pacifists in the world who do practice, you know, extreme nonviolence. I think Jane's, the J members of the Jane realism, Jane's are very, you know, very good examples of that. Like they, um, Jane monks carry peacock feather dusters and they dust the ground before they sit to be sure that they won't hurt a bug when they sit down. Wow. I did not know that. That is, I mean, that is supreme dedication there, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a religion with several million people. Not all of them, obviously, are monks and nuns who adhere to that strict levels, but they examine their food. They're strict vegetarians. Um, they're actually the religion that really, one of the religions that really influenced Gandhi when he was practicing nonviolence and nonviolent resistance. So there are real life examples of that, but I would say that, you know, those of us who practice nonviolence or practice pacifism, that's probably more a minority of how pacifism is practiced. If you want to put it on a scale or on a grid, there's probably a greater variety of people who do have pacifist beliefs that don't even realize that they do. Because the words become so, especially in um, you know, cultures like yours and mine in, in England and in Canada, there's, there's a militaristic tradition that kind of sometimes portrays pacifism as a very negative thing or as a, a non-anti-nationalist thing. Yeah. So it's it's almost like if you choose to um, be a pacifist, then you're saying that you know you shouldn't have armies and you know shouldn't protect yourselves and and you know that's not very mm -hmm. you know uh, that's not you're not believing in the country, you're not being you know a proper citizen or something of that sort of nature because it's traditional to have an army, you need to be able to defend yourselves and 
Yeah, and so much of our history, when you when you look at the history of nations, is tied up in the battles they fought, and the wars they fought, and honoring that. And if this is getting ahead, let me know. One of the things that fascinated me about the Tinkers, um, and this is a spoiler podcast, right? Like spoiler absolutely, vote? yes, perfect. Yeah. So, I probably should have said that in the in the warm up to recording, being like, "By the way, okay. this, this is spoilers. You can swear; it's fine." You know, <laughs> the, the swearing I've I've already burnt that bridge. I saw that one. Don't worry. I, heard, I saw that one. Heard that one. Don't worry. <laughs> but um, I think it's the battle of the is it the battle of the two rivers where the tinkers are being protected. Uh, yes, and yes. their only contribution to the battle is to um, basically promise to to run off with or not run off, but you know, run away if needed with the children of the two rivers, um, too young to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in World War II, um, in Canada at least, and I think in some other countries, there were there were Mennonites who participated in what were called non-combatant roles, and so ambulance, logistics, you know, cafeteria as well as in Canada working on farms because we still needed to eat, we still mm-hmm. needed to feed soldiers. Parts of the railroad here were built by Mennonites. Um, some of them were in forcible work camps, which is something we can you know, touch on a little bit later. But it's not unheard of for pacifists to participate in military activities in what are called non-combatant roles. Yeah. And that, you know, you're not con- contributing to the violence, but you are, you're supporting the War effort, um, mm-hmm. I suppose, is the you know the way you could look at it. And for me personally, I, I think that that you know is is a very effective way to uh, help society without inflicting violence on anybody. But I could understand how you could look at that and think, well, you're supporting someone else so they can commit violence. Yeah, because there's the connection to militarism, right? Like, are yeah. you are you supporting kind of a military culture? Because Pacifism usually is more about war than it is about violence, necessarily. There are pacifists, like me, myself, I'm probably one. A guy tried to rob my purse once and I decked him. Didn't even think nice. about it. Like, didn't even think about it. To me, that's not contradictory to my pacifist beliefs. Like, that's one-on-one, him and I. That's not large-scale mobilization of a military for whatever purposes militaries are used for. I agree there. Also, I'm glad that you decked him. It was it was unexpected. I did not know I would do that. On to one level, not speaking for anybody else or what's right or wrong or anything of that sort of nature. Personally, I say kudos to you for that. I honestly did not expect it. It was one of those things where afterwards I was like, did I really just do that? Because <laughs> normally like, I'd be like, take my purse. I don't need it. But it's just he ran by me, grabbed it, and I just swung around and yeah. Well, it's that um, the whole fight or flight situation, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I hit him. He let go of my purse and he kept running. And then I had this moment of like, should I do something? And uh, like, no, okay, I've got my purse. I guess I'm just going to keep going home. But I mean, that's that's an interesting, um, that, that kind of, not that we've tried to fit that in, but that makes me think of the parent quote that we've got in our, in our um, prep notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll read out if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, so this is Perrin. He says, I don't mean to offend you, Seeker, Perrin says slowly. But while I don't look for violence, I don't think I've even wrestled anybody in years except for feast day games. But if somebody hit me, I'd hit him back. If I didn't, I would just be encouraging him to think he could hit me whenever he wanted to. Some people think they can take advantages of others. And if you don't let them know they can't, they'll just go around bullying anybody weaker than they are. And that is almost, you know, like it's just talking about self-defense in a way, isn't it? In a way too. But I think what's missing in that is when I, when I hit that guy, it was, like you said, the fight or flight reaction. Mm-hmm. 
at least for the pacifism I practice, it tends to be more about preventing violence and preventing war. And so if someone's coming up to me, my first thing is going to be like, I don't need my purse. Take my purse. I'm probably not going to give him my purse and then hit him. Like if I had a moment to kind of rationally think about things. It's like you're distracting him by like, here, take my purse. Whack. (laughs) (laughs) Katana comes out. Oh my God. Didn't see that coming. But it's one of those things where it's like, so I'm currently studying, um, conflict resolution, um, just as a certificate program, because I'm trying to do like a midlife career change. And it's all about like, how do you de-escalate conflict before it starts in a one-on-one situation? And that's hard to manage. It is. And it, it takes a lot of, it takes practice. It's not, all of us in the program are always saying, God, we wish we'd learned this in high school. Because it takes oh. practice and it takes humility and it takes a very specific way of asking questions and, you know, being willing to apologize. Yeah. That, that is very true. I've spent years working in hospitality now. Thankfully, in the last sort of four years, I've progressed into the kitchens and I don't have to deal with drunk idiots and, mm-hmm. and a bar doorway. But for many years, I uh, worked in London and had to deal with drunk idiots at a bar doorway yeah. who refused um, to believe that the bouncer said they couldn't come in for whatever reason and or just violence has erupted or potentially erupting in the bar itself, which, you know, can happen. Mm-hmm. And, I remember the difference between the first few times I had to deal with that and then after I'd been doing it, because unfortunately I worked at a very rough bar, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) the the experience I had when it got to a year or two years down the line and how I dealt with the situations going forward. I can specifically remember a situation of having to um, ask a homeless person who decided to um, wander in to our upstairs area and use our bathrooms and had been in for a half hour. I, I I had to talk him out of the building. Mm-hmm. And he was being very aggressive to me, yelling all sorts of obscenities, um, spitting and, and things of that nature. And I had to, if I think if I'd been in that situation when I first started working in London, I would have handled that in a way that made it escalate as opposed to the situation then mm-hmm. where I managed to get him to leave the building without damaging anything, without hitting anybody beyond spitting at me a few times. Mm-hmm. Um and and that was it. And that no one got, you know, no one was watching and being like, oh my God, he's about to you know, get attacked by anybody. Um, but it was a difficult situation to manage. Like how cl- I was using my physical presence to make him back up slowly and then take steps, you know, go down the steps and out the door. But if I stepped too close, that would make him, you know, get more agitated mm-hmm. and not, and stop moving. Yep. But if I didn't move, he would then work his way back into the pub, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very tough to balance that. And also my, my colleague who was with me for obviously safety reasons, you know, yep. rather than be one-on-one, let's have two-on-one just to make it safer and, you know, less chance of long-lasting violence or damage to anybody. He, he, I had to balance him because he was young and being like, no, you can't speak like you. And I had to be like, shush, just stay mm-hmm. there in case I need you physically. You know? yep. <laughs> and it, it's a very tough balance to achieve. It's, it's really difficult. Um, and it, like I said, it takes practice. One of the things they teach us is like, if ever possible, just stay sitting down. Because like, as soon as you stand up, you've escalated the threat. As soon as you step into someone's space, you're escalating the threat. So are there ways you can kind of nonviolently talk people down? And a lot of the time, it's just saying, that sounds like it really sucks. You know, uh, someone's going off and you just really have to sit there and be like, that really sounds terrible. I'm so sorry you're going through that. And the number of situations I've de-escalated with just those words is quite high. And I'm not someone who runs into a lot of violent situations, but I do live in a city and I do experience um, 
have a lot of people around me experiencing homelessness. So sometimes you, you know, you've got the guy at the bus station who's being aggressive and you're just like, I'm really sorry. That really sucks. Yeah. Empathizing with the person. Yeah, exactly. So with the, with the parent quote, that was the thing that always popped into my head is like, very rarely do people walk up to you and deck you for no reason. Absolutely. And so this, this is one of the things that I, I think we talked about is um, as much as I love Robert Jordan and I, I feel like there's arguments in this book for and against pacifism, often there's kind of almost a false equivalency being, I don't know if that's the, the technical term. Uh, I'm sure someone in the white Aja would be like, no, that's not the right logic discussion term, but <laughs> it's, they're, they're creating um, straw dogs or straw men to kind of argue against that aren't necessarily situations that happen the way they would. No, the, I, I understand what you're saying there. So, um, yeah, the white archer people, sh- sh- yeah, the general public understand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what Aja, just on a quick side note, what Aja are you, Shelley? What, what do you class yourself as? Um, in, this, in the Wheel of Time spoilers discord, I'm in the white Aja because uh, of this philosophy brain that I have. But uh, usually I kind of identify more with the wise ones. I really like the, um, the apprenticeship model that they take mm-hmm. on. I really like... Um, you know, the ideas of honor and obligation. And even though they're a warrior society, I just always felt a little more in touch with the wise ones who weren't quite so exclusionary about people with the power being the only ones we let in and train. I suppose I should have guessed that considering you are, you know, known as Shelley, the wise one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of kind of gives it away, Rob. Pay attention. Um, <laughs> but okay. You're right. There, there are situations that Robert Jordan puts in that just, you know, as you say, are, are straw men situations. Like mm-hmm. you've just created this to almost validate your own argument, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. As you say, people don't walk up and just randomly hit another person. There's usually some kind of discussion or you know argument that is a precursor to physical violence. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's probably someone out there who's had that very situation randomly been hit and there's no reasoning for it whatsoever, but that is, you know, not the norm. That is the, um, that is the exception to the rule or the situation. I was going to say, I've been in rough bars too. And the number of times I see two dudes puffing their chests up, it's like, just, what do you lose? Like, yeah, you're just like, you know what, buddy, have a drink, have a nice day. I mm-hmm. can guarantee you, if one of the two of you asked for my phone number, it would be the one who was like, you know what, buddy, have a nice day. Here's a drink. I'm going to go. Like, yeah. the, the puffing up doesn't impress anyone. <laughs> I've just got visions of Perrin puffing up now to, to, the, <laughs> to the seeker. <laughs> you see him do that sometimes uh, when he like, pisses around the tree with Fail. every time a dude talks to her and he comes over and he like puts his arm around her and like kind of thumbs his axe and you're just like come on dude <laughs> he is he does have that kind of protective arm. now Perrin I, I mean I'm quite happy to talk about his faults I'm quite happy to talk about anyone's faults he's my favorite character mm-hmm. despite his faults I think that's probably because of his faults I like him mm-hmm. um my god does he do that you're right he does do that puffing up sort of situation and he never seems to understand the way of the leaf, um, as, as is put to him in the books. Um, mm-hmm. He just can't seem to accept that sort of thing. I think, and I think we've talked about this, the way Robert Jordan created the world, that there is this only with this one type of pacifism that is a very passive, for lack of a better term, pacifism. Like we just let things happen to us where, yeah. you know, the, you know, the type that I practice involves being very politically active and very politically aware of what's going on in the world and saying, you know, we know for the most part, what leads to conflict. We know that poverty leads to conflict. We know that, you know, scarce resources can lead to conflict. We know that uh, unchecked nationalism can do that. 
So how do we, you know, intervene in the world or how do we, you know, be good citizens of the world without necessarily waiting for the conflict to come up? Yeah, the, the Tinkers very much just, I mean, they even say it in the books, we, we don't, you know, they don't like to be around settlements, they don't be around city, they don't mm -hmm. like to be around cities, they actively avoid everybody except other Tinkers. Yeah, and that is very much like Mennonites and Amish people, um, Hutterites as well, which is another, you know, pacifist branch of Christianity. And I think there was a, a quote about Mennonites. Mennonites, what's interesting is they often, and I, I think I sometimes see this with the Tinkers, is where they're like, not everyone can handle the way of the leaf. Mm -hmm. And so this quote from the book is called Nevertheless by John Howard Yoder. Yoder. Uh, it's called Varieties of Religious Pacifism. John Howard Yoder was an asshole. I'm going to put that right out there. He sexually abused a bunch of women, but he was the main, like, primary thinker on pacifism up until when he died in 1995. Um, so it's a kind of a cloud over this book, but it is still one of the best resources out there. So I just want to caveat that I do know that about him. He's a dick. I'll totally own that. <laughs> no, he, he does not sound like a good human being at all. <laughs> no, it's unfortunate. So he, in what happened is the church covered up a lot of the sexual abuse that happened. And to me, it's, it's such a fascinating, you know, he's, he's talking about pacifism and nonviolence, and here he is, you know, perpetuating violence against these women. And to me, it just kind of shows the ability of people to not think critically about their own actions when they're teaching this in the world. But anyways, back to um, Mennonites. There's a quote from an old colony Mennonite in the book that says, our family has always been Mennonite. We have never taken part in war. That is because we have nothing to do with the world and its ways. It has nothing to do with us, what the world does. It would go contrary to our forefathers to go to war. So it, it, that sounds very much like how the Tinkers live, you know, keeping themselves secluded away from society, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. It's a very, you know, the world, the world is the world's issues and our issues are our issues and we're going to keep them separate. So I would love to know, I would love to see, as many of us would, I would love to see Robert Jordan's notes to see how much he actually looked at the Mennonites for the Tinkers. <laughs> well, as I say, he was, was religious, so that's, and he did pull from various religious themes. Mm -hmm. uh, just talking about the Tinkers, you've mentioned Buddhism and, and you know multiple other religions in there as possible influences for it. I doubt that he pulled that situation together without being at least aware of those aspects of those religions, even if he didn't heavily study them. Mm -hmm. So I would I wouldn't be surprised if Mennonites were a reasonable part of the influence for um, the Tinkers because that. I mean, if you'd set, if you'd just inserted that into a sentence about the tinkers in the books, I I don't see it being in any kind of clash with the story. Basically, mm -hmm. it would have fit entirely. Yeah. One point I want to hop onto: we're talking about this whole like, does it fit? You know, can you actually, you know, live this way? Like the Mennonites, obviously, are, are kind of able to do that. They they live in this world and they they live by their uh, mindset without, I imagine, mo you know, issues most of the time. Mm -hmm. But there aren't things like trollics in this world. No. So. It doesn't work in the Wheel of Time, really, in my view. Um, I don't know how it works in your view. I, it doesn't. And it's, it's really funny because I've, I've had, you know, Tor.com often post rereads. And uh, recently, I think the guy Silas, who's doing a reread, I think that's his name. Um, apologies if it's not. Posted a little while ago about pacifism. And I made a little comment about, hey, guys, that, you know, there's lots of pacifisms. And I thought it was pretty good. And people jumped on me. Well, when you have Trollocs, you can't do this. And I'm like, it's a fake world, guys. Like, <laughs> I love this world as much as anyone, but it's a fake world. Yeah. And so again, it's that, it's that straw man argument because you're setting up a situation where pacifism is no choice. If we had mindless, 
let's compare Trollocs to zombies. It's not a perfect comparison, but if we had like mindless zombies in our world, then of course you would have no choice but to pick up a gun. Yeah. Like it's a false equivalency. And I mean, even in that world, whichever one of the Forsaken it was that created the Trollocs, Agenor, you know, someone should have stopped him. <laughs> I mean, that that's why he joined the Shadow, so he could do things like that. He was yeah. a geneticist. Yeah. Um, he loved to experiment, and the Shadow gave him uh, the ability to study without ethics. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that obviously loosens the strings on, on what you can and can't do in terms of, yeah, just because there's no ethics you can do, well, I can do anything because I've you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that is that is true. And that's the other thing in this world, there is a, a big evil, you know, that's pushing things forward that doesn't exist in our world, even apart from the the Trollocs and the, you know, for my friends who aren't Wheel of Time people, there's several species in the Wheel of Time, you'll hear us say Trollocs, Merdral, Drakkar, that are just evil. And they're all pushed by the Dark One. And we don't really have a Dark One in our world. Like, and so it's it's kind of he has created a world whereby this sort of way of the leaf would never exist, or if it exists, right? Like you're gonna you're gonna suffer what the tinker suffered, especially when you go back in Aiel history and you see, you know, they decided at some point they had to defend themselves, and you see tinkers getting slaughtered. Of course, that's going to happen in that world. Yeah, and following on to that history piece, there, like Dave, obviously started as Daishan. Am I saying is that the Daishan? Daishan, yeah. So that's um, we'll, we'll dig a little bit into more Tinker history, I suppose. Now, um, but they started as that, and they were. I mean, as your notes have said, like you know, how did they actually start? Did they have the way of belief then? My perception with the Daishan Aiel is that they they did, only because you hear the story being told of they there was ten thousand of them who mm -hmm. were trying to protect a city. That was um, and just trying to save itself from a, a male Aes Sedai that had gone crazy. And they surrounded this male Aes Sedai and sang to him whilst he laughed and you know destroyed them sadly, mm -hmm. um, right down to the very last man. And they even tell the story of how he listened uh, to the last Aeol for an hour before killing him. And so I always took that to mean that they followed the way of the leaf even then, because mm -hmm. if they didn't, I don't see 10,000 people standing around singing to a mad male I Sedai. Okay, so that brought a thought up in me. I don't know American history, but that to me sounds like the Selma March almost. Like where, you know, black people got together and they marched and they sang to fight for civil rights and police, you know, beat them and mowed them down. And, you know, in our world, when you use pacifism and nonviolent resistance to change things, there is a shame element, you know, because so, you know, India, uh, Gandhi using pacifism to shame England into the way he was treating Indians and Martin Luther King Jr. and all the other black activists shaming and using the constitution. And they did that same thing. So I just never actually kind of saw that equivalency before of just like, I wonder if that moment of, you know, people marching and singing and getting, you know, beaten down for their beliefs. Obviously, the story is somewhat different, but I've never kind of seen that parallel before. It could be totally off. I mean, that again, I mean, I'm not um, entirely familiar with American history myself. So that was, um, I suppose, if I'd had that edge part of my education as that, had that as part of my education, use words, mm -hmm. Rob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> words are overrated. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> You'd think they would be, but not on a podcast. Um, <laughs> that probably would have been a more significant thought when I read that scene in the books. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose I just read that scene in the books and tried to relate it to something else I'd seen in that world. And because the Tinkers come from the Daishan Ail, or, or, well, yeah, they do. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know why I'm trying to suggest it, trying to say that it looks like they do. They do. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's actually canon. Um, that I just made that connection there that they must have lived by the way of the leaf. And then the history of the Ail is explained um, where it's like, you know, we don't do violence or something. And then they go to rescue the kidnapped um, children or, or something of that nature. Um, mm -hmm. And they start picking up weapons to defend themselves and hiding their faces. And then you get the ideal that we know in the main story. Yeah. It's, it's that, um, I think in the notes that we were taking, I said something about, I saw a covenant, but we never really know what the covenant is other than service to the eyes to die and to follow the way of the leaf. Yeah. So those are the two elements we know, but we don't know much more about the specific covenant. So they not only, and that's where it differs from most religions. It's not only do they practice the way of the leaf, these early Aiel seem to have made some sort of vow to do so. Yeah, because it's, it's just a, a way of life for the Tinkers. It's not um, it's not a, a covenant they've made with a higher power or a, you know, a government in the world. It is just, we live our life this way and you know, stay away from everyone who doesn't. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that struck me when we were talking about the, the history of the Aiel is when they first take up swords, there were Mennonites in Canada who did join the military in combat roles. And you can actually, when you, my thesis was on, my PhD thesis was on museums and how museums, so, uh, minority communities in Canada use museums to kind of challenge Canadian identity. And I went to a Mennonite museum in uh, Manitoba, where the majority of Mennonites in Canada have settled. And one of the exhibits was about the generational echoes from the conflicts in the community from those who had decided to take up arms and those who had not. And I guess that's very similar to what we see with the Aiel and the Tinkers is, you know, there were people excommunicated. It, it was really rough. Like it was tough on the community. And you see that in some of the documentaries and interviews. So the descendants of those that went to war in combative roles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose they might still consider themselves Mennonites, but do the ones that didn't consider them Mennonites? Like, what was the... So, in some of the old order communities, they still practice um, kind of a form of shunning or excommunication. And in, it was rare in the old order communities. But in a lot of communities, it did break up families. And those men, you know, because it was mostly men, um, would still... Many of them still consider themselves Mennonites. And for them, they're using kind of a just war theory, which is like... You know, this was the war. World War Two was the war. Like, there is no other war where we are going. Like, this is the war that we have to fight in. And many Mennonites didn't participate in that. But I think the split in the community is very real to the experience of Mennonites in Canada. So, having all of that knowledge just given to me there, um, <laughs> and I very much appreciate that knowledge. You see, this is why I bring people like Shelley into the podcast, ladies and gents, because I love Wheel of Time and I'll talk about anything in Wheel of Time and, and ramble on for hours. And sometimes I know what I'm talking about. On this occasion, I was like, I need an expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert. I'm just, I'm just a practitioner who likes to read a little. That probably makes you much more of an expert than the average person because, I mean, I, I read fantasy books mm -hmm. and, and things like that, sci-fi and other things. I don't 
I very rarely pick up a book that isn't sci-fi or fantasy. Mm. Um, and if I do, sadly, it's generally some kind of autobiography or, or general biography of a, of a person that I'm like, I like that person. So I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with the pan- uh, pandemic by reading paranormal teen romance, so I wouldn't put me up on too much of a pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> I, the personal share for everybody, I was unable to read for uh, a few years. I totally got out of the routine of reading, and I was like, oh, I wanted to, to get back into reading Stormlight, which I struggle to read. And um, I picked it up twice and put it back down twice, even though I've read it twice. I, like, I know what's going to happen. It's not like I'm struggling to get through a story I'm unaware, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with, but I still couldn't read through the first one because I do just find, I just find it heavy reading, even though I like big books. It's, it's a heavy reading. It is. So I actually picked up a set of teen vampire books called Vampire. It starts with Vampire Academy. I don't know what the whole saga is called. It's six books. And I read that and I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I have, you know, silly book. I have silly things like that. Like I, I have the Twilight series. I'm not afraid to say that. Um, so sometimes you just like, you know, the the easier read, the trashy read. So yeah, it's and it's even for a pacifist, I love a good battle scene. So cool. you know, I read these books and I'm like, yeah, at least I feel good. You know, thinking about fighting techniques and what weapon they're using because they're using them against things that don't exist. That is true. Yes. So you know, it lets it lets me kind of get out that part of my interest. I hadn't thought of it in that way. That's mm-hmm. um, that's a great way to look at it. After all of that knowledge you've just given us, it feels like Robert Jordan knew about those Mennonites going to war. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, it, if it, it feels like too perfect a match to not be an influence for the IEL history. Yeah. It seems to fit very well. The only difference is we then didn't get, uh, we didn't have, I don't know, uh, like a warrior class of Mennonites appear out of it. <laughs> it's the only no. difference I'm seeing, really. No. You know? um, but I mean, what's also interesting is post-war, the Mennonites in Canada were some of the first to really fight for veterans' rights and veterans' health care and recognize, um, you know, PTSD, what I think it was called shell shock at the time. Um, that sounds right, yes. Yeah, so they were they were some of the first people to kind of say, hey, guys, we've put these people through hell. Let's care for them now. And you see that with the tinkers, right? When when you see post battle, they take them in and they take care of them. Yeah, I'm seeing Mennonites as a pretty significant influence for mm-hmm. the tinkers. It's- Everyone tends to focus on the Roma, I think, because of the wagons and the and the sexy dance and Well, let's be honest, human beings on a general basis are visual. Yes. You know, they, they, you know, a lot of, I mean, that's how we're attracted to each other. Generally speaking, you see someone, you think, wow, they're attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a physical thing. Um, obviously not everyone thinks that way and not everyone's in the position to be able to, you know, to, to see things visually. Um, you know, so I'm not suggesting that's everyone ultimately, but mm-hmm. on a general basis, that's how human beings work. So I think they see the wagons and the colors and the dancing and just kind of like when you're separate from quote regular society. There's always a little mysticism and, mm-hmm. you know, there's rumors and all sort of Chinese whispers going on about, you know, what happens and such. And so that gives you a little bit of, I don't want to say of a worldliness, but, you know, the, it is a mysterious culture unless mm-hmm. you've got and met them and visited them and, and live with them, such as Elias does yeah. um, for short periods of time. So that lends itself to Roma and and, and, and those cultures because, you know, there's all sorts of you know, like, oh, they're witches or, you know, they have these magic powers or they tell the future or, you know, all sorts of different things, superstitions um, mm-hmm. sort of you know, are wrapped around them type thing. So 
But I think people see the wagons or envision the wagons and the colors and the dancing and all that mysteriousness nature of them because they're not in main society. And I can understand why people go to the Roma first, thinking, yep. hey, that's who they must be based upon. Because visually, that's how they come across, or at least that's how I read them in the books. So, Yeah, and I mean, it's fair that most people don't read about a minority religious sect. I certainly didn't until this podcast. So <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very accurate assumption of, of the general reader's yeah, but I mean, that that's, and it's only because I went to um, University of Waterloo for my undergrad, which had a big Mennonite college. And that's where I studied the, like my theology courses. So that's, I, I'm not even Mennonite. Like, it's just happened to have been very influential in how I grew up. But yeah, it's, it, I think we also talked about the Irish travelers as well. Yes. Um, I didn't know much about them until I started reading about the, because the Tuathon is actually a Irish Gaelic word, right? Yes, I believe so. Um, I it's a very long time ago that I ever made that connection, and yeah, and I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, and they apparently the Irish travelers refer to themselves as uh, Mincheri, Mincheri, or Pavis, or an Irish as a Luxiul, and I do not speak Gaelic, so all those pronunciations are probably butchered. But yeah, that's interesting that Luxiul translates to the walking people, which I mean could just be the traveling people, which is another tinker name. Yeah. There, there is a, yeah, a mix of influence. Um, mm. So perhaps how they're known, uh, how they travel is based off Irish travelers. Um, they're visually based off Roma and their society or their beliefs are based off Mennonites. Yeah, except for the sexy dance. That is not a Mennonite thing. <laughs> I, I, did not, I did not expect that to be a Mennonite thing, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I fully put that down to the the, the Roma or Gypsy influence. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I feel like that's you know the, the the those feel like the major few influences for the Tinkers. But we had more sort of notes on pacifism going on to now. You, I, I love this note. So you were just sending a few thoughts in mm -hmm. in the, the the show notes um, as you know we were bouncing ideas around, mostly your ideas based off you know your experiences and your studies which is great but you stumbled across something that i truly just was like oh my god i love this and you've put down you, you think that robert jordan that perrin is robert jordan's all for surrogates mm -hmm. for when he discusses his own struggles with pacifism mm -hmm. you know and i love that note now i as soon as i read that and then i read you know the other sort of sub notes that you've put with it i remember hearing that RJ has said in interviews that he most identifies with Perrin, mm -hmm. but it never made that connection. I always just thought, you know, Perrin is who he put most of himself into type thing. Mm -hmm. But I never thought of it in terms of, you know, struggles with pacifism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was – my mind just went a little bit like <laughs> when, when I read that line. Um, oh. I think I even said that to you. I was like, oh, my God, that, that's an amazing point. We definitely need to talk about this. So. Yeah, it's uh, like the author surrogate is a literary technique. The mo in, in fantasy, we talk about it a lot as like the Mary Sue or the Larry Stew, you know, the person who really inserts themselves into a story as an idealized version of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in, and I'm not, I am not a literature critic. Uh, this is just, again, me reading lots of things. But um, an author surrogate is, again, the author kind of inserting him or herself into the story, I should say themselves into the story to explore an idea, to, to get you know, to narrate, to do something that kind of has to almost break the fourth wall a little bit, even though it may not be intentional. Mm -hmm. um, and that's partially what I think 
Robert Jordan is doing here. Um, you know, we were, we've talked, we, we were talking beforehand about his experiences in Vietnam. Yes. And so he was a soldier. And I'm going to start because this is where a lot of conflict with pacifists comes up. A lot of people think pacifists dislike soldiers or hate soldiers or have some hate on for soldiers. And that's, and I mean, I'm not going to say there are none who don't criticize soldiers mindlessly, but that's definitely not the case with me. So I just want to put that out there because sometimes that is a criticism people get. But in terms of Robert Jordan, like he went through some pretty shitty stuff in Vietnam. And when you've gone through that and you encounter pacifist beliefs, you, you, you have that internal argument and debate with yourself. And I think RJ uses Perrin to have that debate with himself. Um, unfortunately, I think like, like we've kind of said already, um, he sets up a straw man argument in that, you know, the tinkers are only one very strict type of pacifism yes, and it's a yes. world where pacifism could not exist. But, you know, I don't know what his politics were, but you know, when you, when you look at the world, you can identify big evils that you think you have no choice to fight against. People, you know, say that about world war two, um, People said that about communism, like people have identified things they see as evil that, you know, it's your moral obligation to fight against. And if you are exposed to pacifist ideas, you, you have to, you often will find yourself doing that internal reconciliation. And I think that Perrin is partially how Robert Jordan did that argument with himself. Yeah, I, I have to completely agree. Just think about Perrin's journey. You know, there was a lot of failure, um, mistakes. And, and things that he struggled to deal with throughout his entire arc. And it mm -hmm. wasn't basically until the absolute end before he kind of got his head around it all and was able to mm -hmm. deal and find the balance of everything. And whilst I am certainly not, you know, I, I mean, I'm lucky enough to say that I've never been in conflict. I've never been in war. My father has. My grandfather was. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I've heard stories, redacted stories in some cases, because, you know, my father didn't want to, share gruesome details um, from the Gulf War specifically, mm -hmm. but, you know, it does affect you for, you know, as you say, with PTSD and stuff, it does affect you for the rest of your life. And I can just imagine having read, now going to get slightly macabre, but I spent um, quite a while going through absolutely every single one of Robert Jordan's posts in his blog on Dragon Mount as he sort of documented, unfortunately, his final days. And there's moments in there where it's, you know, there's highs, there's lows, but he describes um, his, his journey dealing with his condition and how he's in the, basically described it like he's in the ring with the disease, almost like a Rocky moment. Um, he does actually reference Rocky in it. Um, and <laughs> the, his journey is basically just keep going, keep going, keep going. You mm -hmm. know, it's, this is not a case of 12 rounds and then the judges make a call. This is a case of, you know, it's not over till one person doesn't get up for the bell, basically. And the perseverance that he goes through and his, and his drive to just be like, I'm not going to let it win. I'm not going to let it win. But the acknowledging the struggles along with that. And he, at only one point did he say, I've actually won a round. And prior to that, he was all like, well, you know, it didn't win this round. You know? uh, but mm -hmm. I went back to the seat and I've got amazing people in my corner, but I sat on that seat for as long as humanly possible and got up at the last moment for the bell because I needed that rest. Mm -hmm. um, and just that you can feel the struggle in those posts. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, can, I can see Perrin going through that, like, you know, the description of his struggle with the, just any moment, like when Fael gets kidnapped, people want him to be, 
you know, uh, startup Menethrin again being a lord, you know, various levels of uh, of stress and pressure. But you know, again, it did feel like he was every opportunity he got, he was like, right, I'll just sit here and kind of just recollect myself before the absolute last moment mm-hmm. when I get back up and have to deal with this. You know, and it's it just resonated very well for me that um, you know, I mean, that resonated when I first read it, but now that I've read, you know details of his blog and I'm by no means an expert on how Robert Jordan fought or behaved but you know I just see that so much that uh, I can't help but read Perrin now and think of Robert Jordan. Yeah it's and I mean if, if we were both talking about how we've been through um, losing family members to cancer and it's you know you you have to I don't want to speak for your experience but I know in mine there you know there are periods where you just have to leave and you just have to mm-hmm. recuperate. Absolutely. And it's you know, it's it's a constant fight, and it takes over your whole brain. And one, and Parent's not my favorite character. My favorite character is naive, but I've always liked Parent. I've never always liked Parent, and never fully understood the hate he gets online because he's so thoughtful, even though his thoughts are often wrong. But who among us interpret things correctly all the time? And I just, you know, I always thought that was such a an interesting, like you know, Matt rushes in, Rand broods, and Parent thinks, and it's just, I don't know, I relate to that. I'm, I'm obviously someone who likes to think about things quite deeply and, you know, know everything in advance before I really make a decision. So, and I can think like, I don't, you see some of it with Rand, obviously, kind of figuring out how he's going to lead and having his own moral dilemmas. You don't see Matt having moral dilemmas as much. But I think that is very true to parents' personality is to sit there and have this kind of, huh, there's this idea called the way of the leaf. What am I going to do with that idea? And really think about it and really long for it. And I think, you know, his piece comes when he's like, I have to fight, but I have to not love fighting. Yeah. And I, as you say, that just, it, it does, I mean, that fits in the idea. Well, you know, you can put that under the umbrella of pacifism that, you know, there are people out there that, are, you know, say themselves, call themselves pacifists and be like, well, I'll fight if I have to. But I don't enjoy it, and I, you know, I'm not going to seek it out, type thing. Yeah, they have. Um, I was reading reading it in my book earlier too. It was one of the ones I came across, and I was like, "Oh, this is just short of just war theory." But it's basically like setting up a set of principles, and when those principles, um, Yoder in his book calls it pacifism absolute of absolute principle, that you know, eventually there are a set of criteria, and when these criteria are met, that is the only time we are allowed to go to war. And, you know, that is one of those ones that I, you know, I don't love because there's a lot of who sets the criteria. Part of the issue with just war theory or just war is that, you know, initially when the, when the church, the Christian church started, they were pacifists. Like the, the first Christian martyr, Maximilius, was a pacifist. Um, I actually have a quote from him in this book that I found really fascinating. So Maximilius, um, the story of a noble martyr from 295 AD says, I cannot serve as a soldier, said Maximilius. I cannot do evil. I am a Christian. Dion told him, in the retinue of our lords, there are Christian soldiers and they serve. Maximilius replied, they are responsible for their own doings. Maximilius was sentenced to death and the sentence was carried out immediately. So one of the first martyrs of the Christian church was a pacifist. That is the same church that a thousand years later was running the Crusades. So that that's where I struggle with just war. Um, it went from pacifism to just war to holy war. 
And that's that. And I know slippery slope arguments have their own logical yes. fallacies, but that's always the one that kind of makes me kind of think about that. Within a thousand years, the church was like, no, 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 no. Now we have to go invade Jerusalem and Constantinople. And he and he's still held up as a martyr. So I mean, if 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 we want to bring that back to the wheel of time, I mean, that's part of the bigger themes of that story is how much things changed in those times and how they change, right? That's just that's an example where you know, in my personal beliefs, things changed for the worst. I feel like it's a pretty universal thing that the Crusades were not a good idea. Yes. I don't think I'm going out on a limb with that one. No, I don't think so. But I mean, that's part of the wheel of time, right? When you see that with the Aiel, how much they change in that, what is it, 3,000 year period? Like, it's just, you know, your ideas as they're reinterpreted, reinterpreted, interpreted. <laughs> good job, Shelley. As they're reinterpreted in subsequent generations become new things. It's It's such a... I mean, you would think like, oh, we'll talk about the tinkers and pacifism and the wheel of time. And it's just, there's so many things that play into that. It's such a, uh, as I've, um, I think I said in, before we started recording, so many left turns and rabbit holes that you can go down for that sort of thing. Like, this is, this has been an amazing discussion. I've, um, I've got so many more thoughts now <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. I think we strayed from the, um, author surrogate comment, but it, it, it it's just one of those things where it's like, it's such a debate, but I, I feel bad because I think RJ wasn't really grappling with all the forms of pacifism that could exist. As you say, I think this plays a lot into, you know, him wanting to, because let's be honest, let's, let's look at the tinkers. Let's, let's be really Wheel of Time centric for a moment. Um, <laughs> you think yep. we would have been that the whole time, Wheel of Time podcast, but you know, no. <laughs> welcome ladies and gentlemen to uh, Left Turns and Rabbit Holes. What do the tinkers actually add to the story like are they a what do they play a plot device do they mm -hmm. you know, if the only thing i seem to see is they set up for an introduction to a you know way of the leaf where you are you know absolutely abstain from violence um mm -hmm. getting aram and then watching him be corrupted and now i suppose on one level i initially thought that that was kind of you know just um proof that you shouldn't stray from the way of the leaf and if you do that you become this corrupted person that then turns on your friends you know mm -hmm. that's an extreme path but you know I, yeah. sometimes extremes are used to make people just think a little bit more um in that in that line of thought um in that direction but aside from that it's all just for perrin isn't it really i am you know mm -hmm. it's all his inf influence it all influences him yeah, no, I get what you're saying too. And I think Aram's an interesting character because Aram to me is almost what would happen if Perrin wasn't as thoughtful as he was. Aram's like gets the single minded revenge and violence in his head, uh -huh. and that's it. Yeah. Whereas, and yeah, he learns to love violence, I think, whereas Perrin rejects loving violence. Perrin sees violence as a necessary evil. Yeah, and, and this plays in with the, the hammer and the axe situation as well, which is one is just for destroying and one can create as well as destroy. Mm -hmm. And I think I told you before, I hate the Masima plotline. Plot if, the, if the Wheel of Time series takes out all the things to do with Masima, I will be so happy because I hate that plotline. <laughs> it, it could have been something, I mean, I understand people hating it. I'm, I'm one mm -hmm. of these weird people where I'm like, do you know what? I, I feel like it, it still adds something to the story, even if it what it adds is that you hate a scene or hate, a, uh, hate an art. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not a literary reviewer. I'm not even qu remotely qualified to analyze literature. 
Um, you know, I don't have, you know, I'm terrible at, yeah. I'm terrible at English. So I, there might be some sort of um, arc or plot device or, or, you know, some sort of literary um, process that they just completely fail at, or he complete that. Nasima and his cohorts completely fail at fulfilling and be like, actually, if you take them out, it doesn't affect the story. It's very, very possible. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm one of those weird people who's like, well, it adds a bit that you hate. And, you know, if you only loved every aspect of a story, and didn't have characters or situations that you hated. To me, that's boring. But that's my that's sure. my very personal opinion. Oh, don't worry. There's always Gawain. <laughs> <laughs> is this where I know two people who love Gawain and hate Nynaeve. <laughs> I actually, I actually don't mind Gawain that much. I don't hate him that much. But I think the jokes about how much people hate him are quite funny. Yeah, the joke is definitely about people hating Gawain more than actually yeah. hating Gawain at this stage. More than actually hating him. You know, because he's he's still a teenager, right? Like, how many teenagers wouldn't be stupid? Oh yeah, completely. So, but bringing it back to uh, the Tinkers and Aram and and parents' interactions, for me, it becomes a lot more poignant on Robert Jordan dealing with his own struggles with pacifism mm-hmm. in the books when you think about Perrin being his surrogate, mm-hmm. and then the Tinkers are pretty much there to show Perrin different parts of that struggle different journeys it can go down um different directions it can take because they don't affect anybody else mm-hmm. i say i just i just love that point um that it, it really really resonates with me um that mm-hmm. i just see those struggles and there was a, a quote that i wanted to pull from his blog it's a reasonably long quote it does involve some violence so do apologize mm-hmm. it's not graphic violence but um you know if you're okay i'll, I'll read through that if that's all right Mm-hmm. So um, this is from his blog entry on Dragon Mount, uh, entry 375 called Hi There, if you want to find it. Um, but he, he starts uh, replying to someone whose name I'm not going to pronounce because I'm terrible and it's like 10 letters long or something stupid, para, Parasolidus or something. So I had two nicknames in Nam. First up was Ganesha, Ganesha, again, probably saying that wrong, after the Hindu god called the Remover of Obstacles. He's the one with the elephant head. That one stuck with me, but I gained another that I didn't like so much, the Iceman. One day we had what the Aussies called a bit of a brass up, just our ship alone, but we caught an MVA battalion crossing a river, and wonders of wonders we got permission to fire before they finished. The gunner had a round explode in the chamber, jamming his 60, and the fall had left his barrel bag with spares back in the revenants. So while he was frantically rummaging under my seat for my barrel bag, it was over to me, young and crazy, standing on the skid, singing something by the stones at the... I assume at the top of my lungs, it didn't say top, uh, with the mic keyed so the others could listen in. And Lord, Lord, I rode that 60. 3,000 rounds, an empty ammo box, and a smoking barrel that I had burned out because I didn't want to take the time to change. We got ordered out right after I went dry so the artillery could open up. And of course, the RT took credit for every body removed. But we could count how many bodies were floating in the river when we pulled out. The next day in the orderly room, an officer with a literary bent announced my entrance with the, with Behold, the Iceman cometh. For those of you unfamiliar with Eugene O'Neill, the Iceman was death. I hated that name, but I couldn't shake it. And to tell you the truth, by that time it may fit. I have, or used to have, a photo of a young man sitting on a log eating sea rations with a pair of chopsticks. There are three dead MVA laid out in the line just beside him. He didn't kill them. He didn't choose to sit there because of the bodies. It was just the most convenient place to sit. The bodies don't bother him. He doesn't care. They're just part of the landscape. The young man is glancing at the camera, and you know in one look that you aren't going to take this guy home to meet your parents. Back in the world, you wouldn't want him in your neighborhood, because he is cold. 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 
I strangled that SOB, drove a stake through his heart, and buried him face down under a crossroad outside Saigon before coming home, because I knew that guy wasn't made to survive in a civilian environment. I think he's gone, all of him. I hope so. I much prefer being remembered as Ganesha, the remover of obstacles. Oh, that's a heartbreaking quote. It is a heartbreaking quote. And I just think of Perrin's struggles to to be like, who am I going to be? You know, mm-hmm. can I deal with this violence that's inside of me? Can I find a way to make it work and fit and be who people need me to be? Mm-hmm. And I think so many soldiers don't, you know, they can't, they can't kill that person and leave them in Saigon and it comes home. And yeah. that's where we get PTSD. And, you know, it's the human life cost in that quote is just it's massive. breaks my heart. Yeah. And you, and I mean, that comes up in the wheel of time. You see that in wars. And I think that's part of what I do love about that book is despite the fact I was talking to one of my friends who's a wheel of time fan. And he said that Robert Jordan probably could never be a pacifist because he loves the pomp and circumstance of the military. Cause you, you know, you look at all the time he spends on uniforms and formations and all those things. But what I do love about him is that when he writes it, I don't think Robert Jordan ever glorifies war. No. Like you, you might as well as like, he's like, these are the horrors uh-huh. to him. They're necessary horrors, but he does not glorify it. No, not at all. Um, I actually not as, as, um, sort of a gory a fight, but I had a discussion with someone the other day and, um, the, the main point of the conversation was they didn't like Brandon's writing and they felt the deaths were just sort of skipped past or glossed over and not given much attention. And my, my discussion back because I didn't want to sit there and argue. I was like, everyone's entitled to their view about how they experienced the last books. But, you know, death does not, you know, you don't have a death of your best friend in it. Obviously, you know, lucky enough to not be there myself, but you, we know that you don't have, you know, death in the middle of a war zone and you, you know, everything pauses. You can take time to deal with it there and mm-hmm. then, or, you know, pr- just realize the situation you're in, like in a blink of an eye, mm-hmm. people are dying and you have no chance to stop. Um, and and help them deal with it, process it, any of those things. Um, and my point of the discussion was Robert Jordan knew that because mm-hmm. of his experience in Vietnam and that that was how, okay, he didn't write every single scene in the last books, but that was how he would write battles in general, that people were just dying left and right and there's no, there's, there's no glory to it. There's mm-hmm. no, you know, it's just this is the nitty gritty kind of, you know, without going full on, gory gory details or traumatic details like this is just how it is Mm -hmm. and it it does it's a lot to deal with yeah that's why i don't read a lot of grim dark fantasy because i find i I find that it can be more violent but less respectful if that makes sense yeah yeah robert jordan was very respectful about how he told the story of war i feel Mm -hmm. and i mean i think that that is one of the things that brings me back to robert jordan again and again is his respect, even though he didn't, you know, if we assume that Perrin is Robert Jordan speaking mm. through him, he never settled on pacifism, but he still respects it. Like he, he talks how the bravery it took for um, the Tinker Woman to walk through the woods alone. Yeah. Like he talks about the bravery that is involved in being in nonviolence. Absolutely. And if you look at it, you know, in the real world, people who practice nonviolence. They're not respected as the same level. Generally speaking. Yeah. Like I said, going back to Selma, the Selma March, going back to the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer, Mm -hmm. um, you know, going back as far as, you know, 
Gandhi purposefully doing the salt march. Yeah. It, it, being an active nonviolent resistor is dangerous and people die doing it. And you're, you're in your way, you're fighting for change. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge protester. I've gone to protests, but you know, we have safety plans. We, you know, we get, I've never been tear gassed in Toronto, fortunately, but you know, it happens to people. So it's one of those things where it's like, I, I really like that he respected the courage it takes to not fight back. Yeah. And I just the complexities of balancing all those points of view. I think he did a good job. Yeah. And he's confined, right? Like I, I can, I complain a little that the tinkers are, are one very specific type of pacifism, yes. but I mean, it, I, I also recognize it's a novel and yeah. Robert Jordan wrote his novel and not my novel. And I've said before, Actual pacifism would be very boring in a novel. Like no one wants to read scenes of me writing letters to Parliament or <laughs> all of us like sitting there with bad coffee and cookies, figuring out what prisoner we're gonna see if we can get exonerated for you know protesting. Like yeah. real, real the type of pacifism I practice, which is very socially justice oriented and social activism oriented, it's really freaking boring. This yeah, this is true. I mean, at the end of the day, Robert Jordan is is writing a novel, and mm-hmm. then he. He wants to tell his story, but he wants people to, he wants to tell that to as many people as possible. And it, like, let's go TV orientated for a moment. Like with the TV show, you need to make that appeal to a broad audience. And as thus, you need to pick sometimes the more engaging, the more interesting, or the more exciting, depending on what aspect of the story you're trying to tell in general, mm-hmm. um, of, of the, the situation or the society or the belief system. Um, or, or whatever you're trying to tell that you need to tell the, you know, the more interesting version, I suppose. Yeah. If you, if you contrast the extremes, it's a more interesting story. It is. It is. And, you know, it, it obviously prompts things like this. This is, I very much appreciate your time, Shelley, on this. Um, I, I, I think we've, I don't know about you. Is there, is there anything you want to, to add to this discussion? I'm trying uh, to think if we flog the horse properly. <laughs> I want to make sure we haven't missed anything. There's so many things we could talk about in this. If people want, we can come back because we were going to talk about nationalism. We were, yes. And um, I think maybe that's a whole separate podcast is just what is the idea of nation and how does nationalism play out? In, yeah. And uh, we spent a lot of time on um, the, the tinkers and then um, on uh, all for surrogate sort of thing. More than we expected. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's been well over an hour at this stage. And you said we'd struggle for half an hour. <laughs> I just don't think I'm that interesting a person. <laughs> well, I have been very interested in listening to all this. So, um, you know, I definitely think that my listeners will be interested. I will absolutely invite you back for a discussion of nationalism and, and how that fits into the Wheel of Time because I'm loving this. This is definitely my most serious podcast so far. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no need to apologize. I, I do fun. I, I do a wide range of things. Mm. Um, so I like bringing different people in. For I initially started this podcast to be some kind of Looney Theories podcast, and it very quickly stopped being a Looney Theories podcast. I do Looney Theories on the odd occasion. Mm-hmm. My episode with Call Me Nakomi, um, where we basically dive into is Min part thin. As in eel thin or ale thin, and we get very weird and wacky and house situations, and we start bringing in Sean Chen and their belief systems, and like you know um, the Damani being able to predict the future and all sorts of situations, and it gets a little crazy. Um, I've got a, a live stream which will have been out by the time this episode appears, um, I think. With but anyway, I'm doing it with Master of the Deck, and we've literally just put 
Oh, actually, if you are listening on release day, there we go. This will be out on the 12th of February. If you're listening on release day tomorrow on the 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern, I am spinning a literal wheel with Wheel of Time names on uh, with Master of the Deck. We're going to pull out two names and then randomly try to mess the story around so that they could have some kind of relationship. Who knows what pairings we'll get. If we get brother and sister, we might avoid that situation and redraw a name. Um, <laughs> but this is not Game of Thrones. <laughs> this is not Game of Thrones, exactly. And, and uh, content warning, we did put the golem in the mix. But, you know, we thought we needed to have at least one. We've got the, the uh, I want to say the Chosen, but also you could say the Forsaken, depends on your point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I do joke that, I don't joke, I do say I am Black Asia, but my reasoning for that is they're poorly represented and I can do a decent job. Um, <laughs> I mean that in a jokey way, I don't mean that in a literal way. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've, we have them included. So we have, like, quote, evil people, but we're like, we need a monster in there. Or yeah, you got to have one. Yeah, we're going to have one just to be like, you know, I don't know, loyal and the Golan come out as a mix, my God. <laughs> well, but yeah. one of my favorite things to do is drink beer and talk about philosophy. So I am happy to think about that next time uh, after dry January. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Be happy to have you back. Um, I, I, I'd love that idea. We, I'm quite happy to get drunk with you doing it. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that could be quite exciting. I, mean, I can't guarantee that makes me any smarter. <laughs> I can guarantee it does not make me smarter. Um, Just less afraid of sounding stupid. <laughs> it, I, can God, guarantee, I got a great idea. <laughs> I can guarantee it will increase my rambling. Um, so if you're down for that, listeners, we can definitely arrange that. But um, yeah, this is uh, this has been a lot of fun. Um, so thank you for listening in, whoever you are, wherever you are, to Malkit Talks. Um, would love to hear your feedback about today's episode or any episodes uh, for that matter. So please feel free to, to reach me via email, malkiratalks at gmail.com. Uh, join the Discord server or find me on Twitter at Malkiriar, where you can also find my Wheel of Time based dad jokes or Tam jokes, as I've christened them. Um, if you enjoy cooking or narrations, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, again called Malkir Talks. And if you want to support my content so I can continue to create, please consider joining my Patreon family. I've got a wide range of levels and some awesome benefits up for grabs, and all contributions go towards improving the channel. Thank you again for joining me, Shelley. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad. Uh, And until next time, ladies and gents, and everybody in between, may you always find water and shade. Mm